Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 116, Near to the Heart of God. Well, it's been a while since we've had a debate here on the The Apologetics podcast, and last time we did, it was on the topic of Christology. This was an informal, sort of unofficial, modular almost, uh, debate between Trinitarian Chris Tilling and Arian David Barron, who debated whether or not Christ is Almighty God. This was back in March of uh, this year, of 2014, in episode 113, if you're interested in going back and listening. And today we have another Christological debate in store for you, but I won't give any of the details away until we get to the intro music. Uh, before that, I don't have a monologue of sorts, anything that particularly interesting that I want to share with you, if I ever have anything interesting to say. I suppose that's a, a judgment call on your part. Uh, so I'll just go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation of ministries that I encourage you to check out. This time, Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. I really love Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason Ministries. Uh, I've had each of the uh, each of the Stand to Reason trifecta, if you will, uh, on the Theopologetics podcast before. Greg Kokel, Alan Schliemann, and Brett Kunkel. Uh, I highly recommend their ministry at str.org. Uh, their radio show and podcast has undergone somewhat of a change since I think last time that I promoted them. Um, now the uh, the radio program is aired live online every Tuesday from four to seven p.m. Pacific time. The recording airs as it used to airs Sundays at two p.m. Pacific on AM seven forty KBRT in California and AM one zero one zero KBW in Texas. Uh, but unlike in the past where that was live, now this will be recorded live on Tuesdays and then aired on Sundays. And as usual, the episodes are available in podcast form um, in the podcast feed not long after it airs, a day or two after it airs. Um, it's a great resource, great ministry. I encourage you to check them out. You can find out how to listen uh, either live or on the radio or in podcast form at str. Dot .org please do check them out and with that let's go ahead and move into today's debate a place where we are savior me near to the heart of god oh jesus blessed redeemer sent from the heart of god hold us to To the heart of God. 
As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Monday, August 11th, 2014. But whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to another The Apologetics podcast debate, once again returning to the all-important topic of Christology. Cornell Thomas is the author of the book Searching for Answers, When God Reveals His Image, in which he recounts his quest to understand the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Cornell is a technical engineer and member of the Northwest Christian Writers Association. He enjoys prison ministry, coaching youth basketball, and he lives in my neck of the woods, the the greater Seattle area, uh, with his wife and children. Cornell, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, my other guest is Michael Burgos. He's a theology student at Lee University. He's the author of Kiss the Sun, a Christological apology in response to David K. Bernard's The Oneness of God. And he's contributed articles to both volumes of the Journal for Trinitarian Studies and Apologetics. He attends Northwest Hills Community Church with his wife and six children. He's my friend and has been a guest of the podcast on more than one occasion, but I'll be doing my best to be neutral and objective in moderating the debate. Uh, Mike, thanks to you as well for being here today, and if you don't mind me saying, happy birthday tomorrow. Uh, Thank you, and it's always a pleasure. Now, with those introductions out of the way, let me explain the format of today's debate. The proposition of the debate is this. At his conception, Jesus was not God and man. Cornell Thomas affirms the proposition, and Michael Burgos denies it, and they've agreed to this format. Cornell will begin with a 20-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, and then Michael will follow up with his 20-minute opening denying it. Cornell will have 10 minutes for his first of two rebuttals, followed by Michael's first 10-minute rebuttal. Michael and Cornell will then have 15 minutes each to cross-examine one another in that order. Following cross-examination, Michael will present his second 10-minute rebuttal, followed by Cornell's second 10-minute rebuttal. And then Michael will present his five-minute closing statement, followed by Cornell's five-minute closing. Then we're going to have about 30 minutes of question and answer time, in which I'll ask four questions each of Cornell and Michael, alternating between them. The one to whom I pose the question will have two and a half minutes to answer, and his opponent will have 60 seconds to follow up. That'll wrap things up, so with that introduction out of the way, I'll open briefly in prayer, and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together today to examine and discuss what your Word says about your being and about the deity of your Son, Jesus Christ. Given that your nature and your being transcends our own, we'll never fully grasp the issues that we'll be debating today, at least not on this side of eternity. And sometimes our struggle to fully grasp them leaves us confused and wavering in our faith. But we can rest assured that you have communicated to us in Scripture that which you want us to accept and believe about you. To use language echoing that of Hank Hanegraaff, we can't fully comprehend the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ, but we can apprehend it in Scripture. And while my guests don't currently agree on just what it is we are to apprehend from Scripture, I know they agree, as I do, that it is to Scripture to which we must turn and whose message we must accept. And so I pray that you would work today within each of us, moving us to truly subject our limited understanding to the perfect, reliable, and authoritative Scripture, and to accept what it says, even if what it says is sometimes beyond our capacity to fully understand. I pray you would give us a heart of charity toward one another and respect. Uh, and that you would, uh, and that you would allow all of us to glorify you in our behavior and our demeanor today, in the name of your Son Jesus Christ, Amen. All right. Amen. So with uh, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get started. Cornell, as soon as you begin your opening statement, I'll start your twenty minute timer. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Sure can. Okay. Well, Chris, first I want to thank you for having me on your show. 
And I want to thank you also, Michael, for uh, participating in this debate with me. And I want to say to our listeners that I hope God will bless you with knowledge and understanding in regards to the tri of his son as you listen in today. So what I want to do is I'm going to build the basis on which the book Searching for Answers When God Was Revealed, Revealed His Image was written using several scriptures. The first is, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, Titus 1-2. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3-5. Jesus says, mostly most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness, John 3 and 11. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself, and he who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. 1 John 5, 9 to 10. So as I begin my argument, I want it to be understood that the foundation will be based on the fact that God cannot lie, we should trust in him and not lean on our own understanding, and I will show where the creeds of men began to lean on their own understanding, and this is where many doctrines went astray. It is safe for me to say that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit have given a complete testimony of Jesus, and it is recorded in the Bible. And we must let 100% Scripture speak 100% truth without suppressing anything or omitting anything. And John 1-1 is a prime example. It is one of the most controversial verses in all Christianity. And each denomination creates their own form of Greek to interpret John 1.1. And depending on which school of thought you happen to attend, you will receive their form of Greek. Jehovah Witnesses view John 1.1 to say in the beginning the Word was God and the Word was a God. They believe Jesus was the Archangel Michael prior to coming to earth. Mormons have the same form of Greek as Orthodoxy, only they believed that God and Jesus were two separate gods in the beginning. While Catholics and, and many other Christian denominations view it as God having plurality. While Pentecostals believe that God cannot be three distinct persons, but only one, and God manifested himself in three ways or forms, not persons. So we see here, just John 1.1, we have different forms of Greek and different views. So depending on your theological viewpoint of John 1.1, you would use that form of Greek and, de and defend it. Now, I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but my point is that we must only believe God, Jesus, and the inspired Word of God. And in order for me to truly explain John 1.1, one must begin to understand the relationship Jesus had with the Father as the Word of God in the beginning. One must know the mystery of the fellowship Christ had with God from the beginning. Ephesians 3 and 9 reads, And to make all see that what is the fellowship of the mystery, 
which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The Greek word for fellowship in Ephesians 3.9 is kononia, which is an association, a community, or a joint participation. There was an association or fellowship between God and his word, even though the word was God. And the truth of, this, of the fellowship of Christ had with God in the beginning is basically revealed in two verses. The first is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The second is Genesis 1.27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. John 1, 1 is giving an image of God, who is one. The Word was God. But it's also giving a likeness of God, the likeness of an us. The Word was with God. This allows one to have fellowship with oneself. And this image was actually given to man. It is a direct representation of what we, we refer to as our conscience. The Greek word for conscience is sonodesis. It literally means a knowing, a co-knowledge with oneself, the witness born to one's conduct by conscience. The term co means with, together, or joint, a partner or associate in an activity, which can also be described as a fellowship, a knowledge that is you and is also with you. The term conscience itself is Middle English, and it originated between 1175 and 1225. And there is no Hebrew word for the term conscience in the Old Testament. This word is not used in the creation of man, nor does God use this term in relation to his image. And man is in the image and likeness of God. The term that God uses is the Hebrew word levah, or heart. And here are some examples. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, Genesis 8 and 21, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Genesis 17 and 17, Hannah, she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. 1 Samuel 1 and 13. Each of these verses show that God and mankind, who was created in the image and likeness of God, have the ability to speak within themselves. Psalms 4 and 4 reads, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. This is the fellowship Ephesians 3 and 9 was referring to. Commune means to converse or talk together, usually with profound intensity or intimacy to interchange thoughts or feelings, or to fellowship. A man cannot commune or fellowship with his heart, which is the man, unless the man's heart is also with them. And to get a better understanding, we've got to go to 1 Corinthians 2 and 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man wisdom teach, but what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. The wisdom of man teaches us that the Hebrew word lava or heart, 
is a figurative term and is not an actual part of the living soul. And this era has kept mankind from fully understanding many mysteries of God. But the heart of God was a very important part of our creation. Once again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus tells us several things. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus tells us, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He also tells us those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, Matthew 15 and 18. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, Romans 10 and 8. John 1.18 reads, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Declared in John 1.18 uses the Greek word exegeomai, which means to lead out and signifies to make known. Exegeomai stems from the Greek word ek and hegeomai. Ek is a, is a root word and a primary preposition denoting origin. The point which action or motion proceeds from or out. Hegeomai is the void of a presumed strength and power. So Jesus, who was the word of God, was the voice within God, and the point of action and motion of God's word proceeded out from the heart of God, the bosom of the Father. You see, the wisdom of men began to call the voice that is within mankind a conscience. But in truth, that voice comes from the heart. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, Romans 10 and 8. And Jesus tells us that he speaks what he knows and testifies to what he has seen, and we do not receive his witness, John 3, 11. So Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, was the seat of God's innermost being. He was the fullness of God's heart. Proverbs 4 and 23 reads, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And Jesus tells us, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John 5, 39. Jesus tells us, I am that bread of life, John 6 and 48. John 1 and 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, the word of God was the I am of God, signifying God's true inner self. When God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am who I am, God was speaking from the fullness of his heart as he prepared to set the Hebrews free, revealing the love he had for them in his heart. When Jesus told the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am, he was telling the absolute truth. He was the word of God. He was the fullness of God's heart. He was God's innermost self. And Jesus tells us, he said, For I have given unto them words that thou gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you. And they believe that you did send me. And John 1.14 reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2.6 and 7 reads, 
have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Emptied is the Greek word erogeomai, which means to spit out or spew out or to be empty. Empty is to make empty, deprive of content, to discharge the contents of. So the Word of God, God's true inner self, emptied himself from God. He departed from the fullness of God and became a man. And the fullness of God is best illustrated in Luke one thirty-five. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You see, in Luke one thirty-five, we have one God, but we have three things. We have the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit of God. We have the power of the Most High, which is the Father, the Godhead. And we have the Holy One to be born, which was the Word of God, who was God and was with God. The fullness of God is also revealed in Genesis 1, 2-4, where the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, this is the Holy Spirit, and God said, let there be light. This is the Word of God, proceeding forth from God's heart, His true inner self. And God divided the light from the darkness. This is the power of the Most High, the Father. In Matthew 1.20, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not, take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now the word of God at conception, which was God's true inner self, emptied himself from the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High. Jesus tells us, I came out from the Father in John 17 and 8. He also says, I came forth from the Father, John 16 and 28. He says, for I proceeded forth and came from God, John 8 and 42. He tells us, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, John 6 and 38. And he tells us, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. See, the fact that the Word of God emptied himself from the power of the Most High and from the Holy Spirit is best illustrated in Acts 10.38, when Jesus was baptized. And it reads, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So in truth, God's true inner self proceeded forth from God and became a man. And when he became a man, he was not fully God. He did not have the Holy Spirit, as John bore record of. In John 1.32, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. God himself says in Matthew 12.18, Behold my servant, who I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my Spirit upon him. This is God the Father telling mankind to look at my Son. I will put my Spirit upon him. And once again, John, 1 John 5 and 10 reads, He who does not believe God 
has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. The doctrines of men put the spirit of God in Jesus, the son, before the baptism. He was God's true inner self made flesh. But when you're making God from birth, you turn God into a liar. Jesus, the word of God, he proceeded forth and came out from God at conception. And once again, he did not have the Holy Spirit in him from birth, nor did he have the power of the Most High. He was anointed by those two at his baptism, the two from which he proceeded forth from at conception, according to Luke 1.35. And God gave his testimony when he said, Behold, my son, I will put my spirit on him. Jesus gave his testimony when he said, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write in Luke 4.14, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit also inspired Luke to write, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan. See, this gives more proof that Jesus at birth did not have the Father nor the Holy Spirit. Even though he was God's true inner self, you could not call him God. Matthew one twenty three reads, A virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his, man, his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. See, Jesus was God's true inner self made flesh, making him the son of God, which can be interpreted to say God with us, but it can only be interpreted that way. You can't call him God because God the Father is almighty, and the Holy Spirit also is almighty and has the wisdom of God. Once again, I say Jesus speaks what he knows and testifies to what he has seen. See, before the baptism, Jesus said, I have to be about my father's business. After the baptism, he told Philip, you are looking at the father. For this reason is because now the true thing that he departed from in Luke 135, which was the power of the Most High and the Holy Spirit, at baptism he was anointed with those things. So all three were now one once again. That's why Jesus says, I and my Father are one. The scripture reads, he who is joined with the Spirit is one with him. So once Jesus, who was God's true inner self in bodily form, as the Son of God, was now filled with power and with the Holy Spirit, he became the one true God because he proceeded forth from God and was reunited with God at baptism. I will close now and hand the mic over to Michael. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, just about 30 seconds left, so really good timing. And with that, I'll go ahead and turn the proverbial microphone over to Mike. Uh, and when you begin your opening statement, Mike, I'll go ahead and start your 20-minute timer. Okay, thanks. Well, uh, thank you again, 
Chris, uh, for your time uh, and uh, hosting and moderating, um, and Mr. Thomas for your time and uh, participation. Hopefully I won't need the entirety of uh, this 20 minutes. Today we as, as Christians live in a peculiar time. We have the privilege of looking upon thousands of years of the history of the people of God. Upon examining this history, we see certain patterns, and one of these patterns consists of the emergence of false teachers who arrive from within the church. Whether it was Hymenaeus and Philetus, or the Judaizers, or the Modalists, or the Arians, or the Romanists, or the theological liberals, our Lord has empowered to um, give, his, give his church the tools to refute that which is contrary to the faith. While I'm virtually certain that Mr. Thomas's doctrines will not gain traction like those that have come before, the command to contend for the truth remains, and therefore... By God's grace, I am here today to continue in that ages-long heritage. As it were, I am standing on the shoulders of giants. Mr. Thomas has developed his doctrines according to his belief that the Spirit of God delivered to him a series of isolated verses from Scripture. Upon this basis, Mr. Thomas believes that God has illuminated him to the truth regarding both the nature of man and of God. This revelation, if you will, however, is directly contrary to both a basic contextual reading of the relevant verses and nearly 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy. The entirety of his unorthodox doctrine of God and of man begins with an explicit denial that the biblical text utilizes anthropomorphic language in reference to God. According to the Erdman's Bible Dictionary, anthropomorphism is defined as a term signifying God's self-revelation in human form. Mr. Thomas has stated within his book, numerous times in fact, but I'll, I'll give you one quote here, quote, for God to anthropomorphize himself or inspire the writers to anthropomorphize him would be inconsistent. He would have committed the same sin as man, end quote. For Mr. Thomas, anthropomorphism and God are incompatible. Numerous times within his book, he has insisted that the use of anthropomorphic language by God would be tantamount to lying. Based upon this assumption, my opponent has selectively used certain terms ascribed to God, and he has recast these terms um, to define the, the eternal and co-equal persons of the Trinity into certain parts uh, ascribed to God, such as the heart, the soul, the spirit, and so forth. Mr. Thomas has taken this paradigm that he has made, and he has insisted that for God to be, that for man to be made in the image of God, man must also have the identical immaterial aspects. All of this results in a massive amount of inconsistency that is neither biblical or logically coherent. Not to mention, there is quite honestly an astounding amount of hubris required for someone to take the very bedrock of Christian orthodoxy and dismiss it 
and recast it according to one's non-contextual reading of Scripture. The doctrine promoted by Mr. Thomas denies that the eternal Son of God was co-equal to the Father. As for Mr. Thomas, the pre-incarnate Son is merely God's heart that is a part of God. And so while Christian orthodoxy has uh, historically affirmed that God, the Son, is eternally existing and in perfect co-equality with the Father, and while Historic Christianity has confirmed that God is a simple being, that is, that God is not comprised of parts. Mr. Thomas, who, having no formal biblical training, no training in the biblical languages, no training in exegesis, theology, or even church history, he denies it all. In its place, we have Mr. Thomas's novel concoction, a series of doctrines comprised of unsubstantiated assumptions, that base his denials of orthodoxy. These foundational assumptions are many, but in order to meet the criteria uh, for today's thesis, I will provide three. One, God cannot utilize anthropomorphic or figurative language of himself. Two, for Jesus to have received his anointing by the Holy Spirit at his baptism necessarily demands that he was, both, that he was not both God and man at his conception. And three, the human spirit is directly given by God, and it is therefore incorruptible and or sinless. If these founding assumptions that Mr. Thomas has made in his book can be demonstrated erroneous, then his position will be demonstrated to be impossible, and therefore another heresy predestined for the dust heap of history. To refute the first assumption... Uh, that God cannot utilize anthropomorphic or figurative language, I offer the following. In order for Mr. Thomas to maintain his position with any consistency whatsoever, he will have to affirm that God possesses the following. Arms, a back, ears, eyes, a face, feet, fingers, hands, a head, lips, a mouth, nostrils, shoulders, a tongue, hair, and even a womb. All of these features have been attributed to God in Scripture. Furthermore, God is even characterized as having given birth in Deuteronomy 32.18. Now, do we really think that Mr. Thomas can actually believe that God literally gave birth or that God has fingers, shoulders, hair, and a womb? He would have to, to be consistent. I would wonder if Mr. Thomas believes that God also has wings. As about a half a dozen times within the Psalter, we find God having been given such a characterization. Evidently, what my opponent doesn't understand is that the Bible is quite full of figurative language and literary devices that are not meant to be taken in a wooden literal way. As for the second foundational assumptions in Mr. Thomas's position, that for Jesus to have received his anointing by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, it necessarily demands that he was not both God and man at his conception. I offer the following two points of refutation. 1. Jesus, previous to his baptism, is identified as both Yahweh and God. In all of the Gospels, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah 43 and applied that text unto Jesus. Consequently, John has identified Jesus to be none other than Yahweh himself. In anticipation of his birth, 
Matthew identifies Jesus as Emmanuel, that is, God with us, in Matthew 1.23. 2. Previous to Jesus' baptism, Matthew depicts the wise men worshipping the infant Jesus. Quote, they fell down and worshipped him, end quote. Jesus expl explicitly taught that worship is due to God alone in Luke 4.8, and yet previous to his baptism, Jesus was worshipped. And three, within the prologue of the Gospel of John, John states that the word is theos ein halagas, that is, the word was God. Here, the anarthrist predicate nominative theos describes the articular lagas, that is, that John is telling us that the word was what God was. John then seamlessly tells us in verse 14 that this very same word, that God the Word indeed has become flesh and dwelt among us. John does nothing to indicate an ontological shift or change in the nature of the Word. Rather, he went further to underscore the absolute deity of the Word four verses later, calling him the one and only or the unique God. And uh, if need be, we can talk about the textual variation there. I'm very comfortable with that. Jesus is identified both as God and Yahweh, and he is worshipped prior to his baptism. In light of these considerations, we can see that evidence of Jesus' deity in the meaning of the name Jesus, which, of course, is uh, literally rendered Yahweh Savior. Uh, my opponent believes that Jesus was not both God and man at conception, and in light of that, we must ask, what then would Mr. Thomas consider good evidence to affirm orthodoxy? Lastly, to refute Mr. Thomas's fundamental contention that, quote, the human spirit is given directly by God and is therefore incorruptible, we need look no further than the Bible's emphatic description of the human constitution. The scripture states with abject clarity that humanity is utterly corrupt in all of its faculties. The Bible uses vivid imagery to convey the wickedness of the human state, such that God declares that humanity has altogether become worthless, that our mouths are like open graves. Scripture explicitly refutes Mr. Thomas's assertions. David petitioned the Lord and said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This text assumes that David's spirit was not previously right, and indeed it wasn't, as he had sinned and was crying out in repentance to a very merciful God. Psalm 78 verse 8 describes the rebellious Israelites as those who, quote, spirit was not faithful to God, end quote. If man's spirit is incorruptible, how then can it practice the sin of unfaithfulness to God? Psalm 106 verse 33 describes the harshness of Moses who having been tried by the Israelites was, quote, bitter, end quote, in his spirit. Proverbs 16, 18 describes the penalty of having, quote, a haughty spirit. Isaiah 29, 24 describes those who, quote, go astray in spirit. And frankly, I could provide many more texts that attribute the same kind of sinful condition to the human spirit that is described to the flesh of man. The great tragedy here is that Mr. Thomas does not know how to handle the Bible, and therefore he has rejected the doctrine of original sin.
And in so doing, he has undercut the glorious gospel of the grace of God, the gospel wherein God declares, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. Humanity is in bondage to sin, as he who sins is a slave of sin. And though through the disobedience of one man, our father Adam, we were made sinners, in spite of that we see Jesus, our King, who having previously enjoyed that glory that he set aside, entered into his own creation, and he did so righteously. Did God send his son to earth and in doing so usurp the Adamic nature? Was Jesus morally perfect by divine fiat? Certainly not, as Jesus possessed perfect righteousness already. Had he not entered the world, had he not been the incarnate son of God, but merely a person who had no divine nature, he would have had the same sinful nature as you and I. But this, thankfully, was never the case. Rather, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and in so doing, he condemned sin in the flesh. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, you had plenty of room to spare, as you intimated at the beginning you might have. Uh, at this point, we'll return to Cornell. Uh, he'll have 10 minutes to provide his first of two rebuttals to your opening statement. Cornell, when you're ready to begin and when you start your uh, rebuttal, I'll start your 10-minute timer. Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say uh, thank you, Michael. We covered quite a bit there. Gave me a lot to talk about. Probably won't be able to cover it in 10 minutes but I'll do the best I can. Well, first of all, Michael, you talked about the history of the church. But when you talk about the history of orthodoxy, you're talking about the history of the Catholic Church. You're talking about the history of the Pope, a man who calls himself God, who the world calls the Holy Father. And they sit in offices and decided what we were going to believe. And the biggest thing that they decided that we were going to believe was the image that we are created in. The image that we believe that we are created in does not come from God. It came from a man. It came from the Pope. God created us in his image and his likeness. You see, when you talk about God, you only use the word image, Michael. And that's because that's what you have been taught to say. But the likeness we share with God has to do with the immaterial aspects of our spirit. Because within our spiritual image we have what we refer to as the heart. That's why the scripture says, and God said in his heart. Now, when we talk about anthropomorphic terms, see, the heart is said to be wicked. Hebrews, I mean, Romans chapter 1 reads, for the wisdom of men, their hearts became darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and turned the image of our of God into the image of a corruptible man. See, the verse that talks about the heart of man being deceitful, and if God was to claim, I have a heart, and the heart is claimed to be deceitful in the Bible, that makes God put it something that's corruptible as his own image, to anthropomorphize himself in that fashion, which is a false teaching. Because the heart of man is a, is a reality. 
What we speak comes from our heart. The path we take comes from our heart. What we do, what we say, what we believe. And how does that, how does that filter into the Bible? Well, if you are in a store and something gives you the thought to, have a, to steal something, that thought comes from your sin nature. Jesus says, do not follow the desires of your flesh. But something in us always tells us to do the right thing. That's the thing that we call a conscience, which in my opening, I said is really our heart. So those two things, the Spirit communicates to, to our heart, and our heart decides what to do. As Romans 6, 6, 17, 16 and 17 reads, whom you choose to obey, you obey from the heart. So within my heart, my heart will direct my path when I get thoughts to do something, you know. So the Bible is real to life, and that's what God had to show me. He said, you know what, my Bible is true, and it is a description of your soul and how your soul operates. Now, you talked about Jesus being Lord. Well, for that, we have to go to, we have to go to Psalms 50 where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, you see, in that scripture, we have a Lord A and a Lord B, and we only have one God. That was God was Lord A, which was the power of the Most High, and Lord B was the Word of God. So Lord A, during the conception... Lord B proceeded forth and came from God, as Jesus tells us, I proceeded forth from God. So Lord B, when he was born, he was Lord in the Old Testament as well. So when, the, when he was worshipped, he was worshipped as Lord because a man's heart is his true identity. So Jesus was God's true identity. So for, for you to say that he was not God or couldn't be worshipped is an error. But see, when Jesus, Lord B, proceeded forth from Lord A, there was a separation. Because G Hebrews 2.17 tells us he, he was made in all things like his brothers, not some. His brothers were not born with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not born with the Holy Spirit. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. And he was tempted at all points as we are. See, God the Father, for one, can never be in, in, in the likeness of anything sinful. That's a mistake that orthodoxy makes. They say that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but then they turn the word of God into a lie because then they say the likeness of sinful flesh does not really mean same as. So once again, you have turned God into a liar to cover up for other things. So Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness the Father God could not be in. This allowed him to be tempted. Something else, God the Father cannot be tempted. So Jesus, as I said, when he proceeded forth from Lord B, before baptism, when he was walking up to John, John knew who he was. He was Lord B from, from uh, Psalms 50. So to say that made him 
totally God is an error. Now, you also talked about the spirit being sinful. Those scriptures that refer to our spirit being sinful, our spirit, when we are children, has to learn goodness. It has to learn righteousness. It's from God. It, it contains our morals, our values, our principles, our righteousness, our love. These things we have in our soul from birth. The only thing is, is that it's not developed. But as our parents teach our children to love, to be kind, as the scripture says, train a child in the way he should grow up, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. The spirit of a man retains the things of the man. As the scripture says, what knows the things of a man except for the spirit that is in him? So your child's spirit retains all the goodness. The sin nature or sin consciousness within the child retains all the things negative to God. As it says, the mind of the flesh is not subject to God who can never be. So once the sin nature tells your child to do something wrong, something in your child always tells your child to do what's right. That's the child's spirit if it has been taught the right thing. See, the scripture you're referring to talking about the bad spirit refers to people who have not been taught God's word from their childhood. Because that's why Matthew 2, uh, 2.15 reads, He had a godly seed, therefore take heed to your spirit so you do not deal treacherously. See, the godly seed is put in us within our children when we teach them the good thing. And that seed is developed and grown in their spirit. And then their spirit begins to direct them, even though that our children have not fully accepted Christ yet. See, Satan did the world a grave disservice. He's taught us to call it a conscience. So when a child is out on the street and they get the thought to do something wrong and something in them says don't do it, they don't connect that to a spiritual entity. They think it's their conscience. They think it's them telling them, oh, your dad going to get mad, don't do it. In actuality, that's the part of them that comes from God. But we do not teach our children that, and we do not teach the world that. So Satan did us a grave disservice on that. So to say these immaterial aspects of our soul, which is the, the spirit, the heart, and the sin nature, Jesus says the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He has already separated the soul for us. Because the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing the soul, the spirit, the bone and marrow, which is the flesh, and the thoughts and intent of the heart. It is with the thought and intent of our heart that we do what we do. That's why God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not let the people go. That's why God turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar into that of a beast, and Nebuchadnezzar went out in the field and ate like the wild oxen. See, God showed me that the, 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 his word is a linear truth. King Heshbon, God hardened his spirit, and he, would, he might let them pass. See, when God hardened his spirit, it doesn't mean he won't do it because your spirit has to tell you, but the decision is made within our heart. That's why we believe unto righteousness from our heart. We don't believe unto righteousness from our spirit. Cornell, that's... We don't not believe... 
Sorry, that's that time? yeah, that's ten minutes. Okay, great. Okay, Mike. Uh, now it's your opportunity to spend time ten minutes rebutting uh, Cornell's opening statement. I'll start your ten minute timer when you begin. Okay. Uh, thank you. A lot to cover here. Um, Mr. Thomas began uh, mentioning the text Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I think when the, the writer talks about trusting in the Lord with all your heart, I think that he is saying here to have faith. And we gain a a faith of of the one true and living God through the hearing of God's word. After all, faith comes by hearing, right? So, Mr. Thomas uh, evidently does not realize that when we trust in the Lord with all our heart, that is, i.e., um, trusting in what is written, uh, uh, that revelation that we have received within our Bibles, trusting in that means to read it correctly, means to use proper uh, hermeneutics and to read Scripture as you would a piece of literature, um, not merely picking and choosing proof text to support a pre-existent conclusion. Mr. Thomas said explicitly that the Spirit is not when we're born, that the spirit is not corrupted, it's not sinful, it's it's the seed of our morality and the seat of our good character and so forth. Mr. Thomas is wrong. David is a fine example of someone who grew up as a God-fearing Israelite. And yet that same David said, in sin and iniquity was I conceived. If there is anything abjectly clear in the scriptures, whether it be the Old Testament or New Testament, it is that man is woefully corrupt down to his core. He is corrupted, and he is by nature a rebel. We are, as Paul said, children of wrath. And to object to that is to undercut the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it ought to be made abjectly clear tonight that what Mr. Thomas is doing is preaching another gospel, a gospel of his own making. Mr. Thomas talked a lot about Lord A and B. I'm sorry, but I don't buy that for a second, and I don't think, Chris, your listeners do either, because the Bible is very clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, not A and B. He said it was Psalm 50, wasn't it? He's talking about Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1 can be understood various ways, but none of them can be understood in the sense where you have a bifurcation of the deity before the incarnation or after the incarnation. You can't have that. That's two gods. Orthodoxy has never taught that. Mr. Thomas mentioned in his opening statement regarding all these differing forms of Greek and so forth. The Bible is written in Greek. Uh, in order for us to understand the Greek of the New Testament, uh, we need to study and show ourselves approved. Um, and 
there's only one Greek text. I mean, you can't say, well, some people have a certain interpretation of that text, and therefore some people have a, another interpretation, and say, well, to heck with the Greek, because, you know, everybody's got a different idea. What is different about the Bible is that it has objective meaning, a definitive meaning that is main and plain, especially John 1.1. 1, 1. The reason why there's a lot of de disputing and a lot of arguing regarding it is because there are men out there who are sinful and who are absolutely determined to bring uh, false teaching within the body of Christ and, and even without. Um, Mr. Thomas made mention of uh, the hymn in Philippians 2. Um, made mention of Christ emptying himself, um, and that this was uh, a divestment of a divine nature, which would be the heresy known as canoticism. Uh, he misread the, the verb there. Uh, I, I forget what he said, but the verb actually is the verb kanao, which means to empty. Um, this word is used a number of times in the New Testament, um, Every time it's used by Paul, uh, which is 1 Corinthians uh, 1 17, um, 1 Corinthians 9 3, and uh, also I think one other time in that same chapter in Romans 4 14. Every time that's used, it is not used in the way that would, it's not used in a wooden literal way. Rather, it's used to carry a, a metaphorical or idiomatic meaning. Uh, when when Paul says talks about us being conformed to the image of Christ, uh, using that that same kind of language, um, he is not saying uh, that uh, you know we are to also have a divestment of a divine nature. If you follow that, um, just talk about Philippians two here because I I think this really proves the point. Um. When we look at that text, if we read it through uh, from beginning to end, uh, it is wholly apparent what what is going on, what what Paul is getting at. He's in the beginning of that text. He he talks about he he says to the Christian church in Philippi, uh, "Be of one mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind," and he gives some practical uh, steps. To, and how to do that, uh, counting others more significant than yourselves, uh, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he gives us an exemplar, a, a perfect example of that kind of behavior. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What Mr. Thomas does not understand is the way in which Christ emptied himself is somewhat counterintuitive. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By, and, and he did that by being born in the likeness of men. Um, there's not a divestment of divinity here. And that is exactly why Jesus said in John 17, Father... Give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus entered into his own creation. He took upon himself the limitations of human existence and in so doing cloaked the, the divine majesty and glory that he had only to receive that glory back 
to himself at the cross. Of course, the cross being his great coronation where the humble king is once again made glorious. Um, one last thing here, and, and then I'll concede the balance of my time. What is important to notice here is how Mr. Thomas is presenting these passages totally and utterly without context. He cannot walk through a passage in the Bible and show what he is trying to teach. Rather, he has to take a little bit here, a little bit here, squish them together out of context, and voila, we have a novel doctrine. But that is not how we study the Bible. That is not how the Bible is meant to be read. It is a piece of literature that is meant to be read within its context, and hopefully we drive from it its natural meaning, not a very contrived meaning that no one ever heard of until God blessed us with Mr. Thomas and his novel doctrines. And I'll uh, concede the balance of the, of the time. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, it's at this point in the debate that we get into what I consider to be the most important uh, and, frankly, most enjoyable part of a debate, for me as a listener anyway, um, the part of the debate in which my guests will cross-examine one another. Uh, I, I think that it's the point at which our beliefs are really put to the test. Uh, and so at this point, we'll give my, uh, Michael the proverbial microphone. He'll have 15 minutes to cross-examine uh, Cornell. So, Michael, when you're ready to begin asking your questions, I'll start your 15 minutes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Mr. Thomas, is it your position that the spirit of man is sinless and or corruptible? My position of the spirit of man is once a child is born, the spirit within man, as, as Job 32 and 8 reads, there's a spirit in a man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. The spirit, and then another scripture is, what knows the things of a man except for the spirit that is within him? Right, but my question, is, man, my question is explicitly, is the spirit of man sinless or incorruptible? The, sp the spirit of man is sinless. That okay, thank you. Thank you. That, that, that'll be great. Describing the fall of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel well, 5.20 states... Hold on. You, can't, you can't cut me off when I haven't fully answered the question. Okay, would you I, like I, to I, add I, something? Go ahead. Yeah. I said the spirit of man is sinless, but it can be corrupted from childhood if the child is not taught proper morals, values, and principles that are godly from their parents. That's okay. what I wanted to say. Okay, is that... Is that position a departure from what you wrote in your book? No, it's not. It's not? Okay, fine. No, because I, I, I share that in one, in, in one section of the book when I talk about parents training their child in the, which, in the way which they should go. Okay, uh, Mr. Thomas, have you ever read a Greek or Hebrew grammar textbook? No, I have not. But as I studied the Bible, I studied the Greek grammar on the on 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 that on those subjects. Okay, so you have studied uh, from a Greek grammar textbook, or you haven't? Wh which is it? No, I use the lexicon. Okay, Mr. Thomas, who is the only suitable object of human worship? The only suitable human object of human worship is God. But as I stated before, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That was only one God, but two Lords. 
It was God and his heart. The heart of a man is the man. Okay, great. Uh, according to um, Psalm 110.1, uh, in reference to Psalm 1101, can you tell me when that happens? Psalms 110.1. Yeah, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When did that happen? It happened in Isaiah. Isaiah first showed up in Isaiah. I can remember correctly. No, I mean chronologically, time-wise. When did the Father, Lord A, as you said, speak to Jesus, Lord B, as you said, uh, and say, sit at my right hand? When did that happen chronologically? That, ha that happened during uh, Isaiah when he had a vision. Oh, okay, fine. Um... Was Jesus called God previous to his baptism? Say that again? Was Jesus called God previous to his baptism? It could, it could be interpreted God with us, as I said in my opening. But see, God is almighty. And that's where we make the mistake in our doctrines. The Father is almighty. Jesus was not almighty until the baptism, as the Scripture tells us, then Jesus received the power of the Spirit. Can you tell me you what cannot... text? Can you tell me what text says that Jesus was made Almighty at his baptism? When he told Philip, "The works that I do is from the Father dwelling in me." Believe where, the works where, for the very sake. Where is Jesus? Where is yeah? I, where is Jesus's baptism mentioned in John chapter fourteen? If the baptism is not mentioned, then Jesus is telling. Philip, that the Father is dwelling in me because he does the work. Now, let me, did the work start before or after the baptism? I'm asking the questions here. Uh, okay, well, I'll Mr. Say, Thomas, okay. is, was Jesus called Yahweh previous to his baptism? He was Lord. Like I said, in, in Psalms 50, 51, he was Lord. So, yes, he could be called, he could be interpreted God with us as the baptism said. Okay, uh, who is sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, according to Romans 8.3? Uh, Jesus was, the Word of God. Okay, the text literally uses the term huios, which means son. So would you say the son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh? Yes, the Word of God was the son. He right, but you would, agree, you would agree with Paul that it was the son that was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. So if the Son was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, does, not, does that not implicitly identify the Son's pre-human existence as the Son? Say that again? Oh, I kinda, you kind of broke up. Okay, if I'm sent in the likeness of something, doesn't that implicitly identify that I pre-existed my sending? Yes, and I, I, that's what Jesus did pre-exist. He pre-existed right, pre as the heart of God. Yes, I understand, but it was the Son, correct? That pre-existed yes. as the Son? Yes, who proceeded forth and came out from God, as Jesus tells us. Right, but we're talking about the Son, isn't that correct? Yes. Okay, very good. Would you agree that Paul believed that the Son pre-existed not as a part of God, but rather the Son of God in light of Romans 8.3? No. I disagree with that. Okay, so Jesus wasn't the Son of God prior to being sent in a likeness of sinful flesh? 
No, because God hadn't given birth to Jesus before he became... Okay. He was not born, he was not birthed from Jesus, from God before the uh, okay. he was born of Mary. So, so are you saying then that Jesus was not the Son of God before his incarnation? Is, is, is that right? He, he was only he the was. Son of God, in other words, after the, the incarnation? After he was born, he became, that's why the scripture says, the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Yes, okay, very good. So, going back to Romans 8, 3, can you te again tell me who was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh? The Word of God was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Where does it say that in Romans 8, 3, sir? The Son was the Word, correct? I'm asking the question, sir. Where does it well, say the Word was sent in Romans 8, 3? The Son was sent, but the Word was the Son. Okay. If I'm sent to the store, do I pre-exist my sending? Well, you're, well that, that's already being born. You see, you're already born. You already exist as a person. So if I send you to the store, yeah, you pre-exist. That's, that's correct. Mr. Mr. Thomas, what exactly is the likeness of sinful flesh? Would you not say that's the Incarnation? No. The like being sent in the likeness of sinful flesh is not identifying the incarnation. The likeness of sinful flesh identifies the likeness of Adam after Adam sinned. Okay. All right. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, Mr. Thomas. <clears throat> the Father says of the Son, You are my Son today, I have begotten you. Uh, do you agree with that text or no? Yes, Mr. I agree with that. You, you do, okay. Uh, the next verse says, When he, that is the Father, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Mr. Thomas, you previously said that the only object suitable for human worship is God. Do you still stand by that statement? Yes. Okay, thank you very much. I... Uh, I'm done with the time. Okay. Um, that was about nine minutes of your 15 minutes. Plenty of time left. Looks like we'll end kind of early, which is good. Uh, Cornell, it's now your turn to cross-examine Mike. And when you begin your questioning, I'll start your 15-minute timer. Okay, Mike. The first question I want to ask you is that you mentioned Proverbs 3, five. It says, trust your Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. And then you said you think it means faith. So at the point that you start thinking that it means faith, did you start leaning to your own understanding and breaking the rule of Proverbs 3.5? Of course not. No, not at all, because to trust in the Lord is synonymous with having faith. And we can see that from the utilization of, uh, well, you can just read the Gospel of John and see that there's a so kind of there's a kind of trust that one uses in reference to God that is an act of faith. Okay, but what I'm saying is, when you say you think something means something that God says, when you think it, you're starting to lean to your own understanding, and and that was my point. But I want to ask you one yeah, question. Yeah, if that was a question, I'd be happy to respond to it. 
what you're doing is you're using the the verse to undercut uh, man's ability to reason. And in so doing, you have refuted your own question, or at least what I think to be the motivation of your own question. Well, the scripture reads, from the wisdom of this world, the world through wisdom did not know God. But what I want to, another question is, Jesus says, I proceeded forth and came out from God. Now, once he proceeded forth and came out from God, can you show me the verse where God reunited with him? I don't think that Jesus being sent from God means that Jesus was somehow separate from God uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, a, a real quick one would be that would require that God before the Incarnation is not the same after the Incarnation, that we had a Trinity before and a Binity lit after, and I think that is absurd, because God is immutable; He does not change. And and secondarily, um, a separation of the persons is it makes mincemeat of the Trinity, because God doesn't have parts. Jesus is, uh, rather, the Son of God is all that God is, and so for Him to be somehow separated from the divine unity is uh, renders the doctrine incoherent. Okay, my next question is, can you show me the verse where God began to dwell in his Son? Where God began to dwell in his Son. Hmm. Well, in a certain sense, I think that, uh, well, I'm assuming that you're talking about after the Incarnation. Um, yes, after he was born... And I'm assuming by God you mean Holy Spirit, right? So uh, the Spirit of the Father. Okay. Um, well, it, it, certainly we could say that uh, at when when the Conceptus was formed in Mary, we could say that the Holy Spirit was certainly involved in that. Um, we could also say that uh, um, that. Well, the, you know what? The Bible doesn't actually give us a lot of information regarding the work of the Spirit of God uh, in the life of Jesus prior to the baptism. And I, I'm happy to say that, and, and I think that's fine. And I'm not going to speak where Scripture hasn't spoken. Well, see, in that case, you do not believe that God gave a full testimony of his Son. See, Jesus... So I'm going to move on because I'm asking questions, but I'm going to touch on that later. But see, so when Jesus proceeded forth, oh, let me go to this question. You said something else about deception, about me using deception, but I'm going to show you where orthodoxy uses deception. And I'm going to use the, uh, Psalms 51, 5, and 6. You said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, my mother conceived me. The orthodoxy uses this verse quite explicitly. But what orthodoxy does in deception is they leave the second part of that verse out. Because it reads, you desire truth in the inward parts, and the hidden parts you will make me know wisdom. So what is the hidden part of man that desires truth? And I'm going to reference 
John 4.24, there's a, God is a spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Yeah, sure, so I'll be happy to answer that question, because okay. it would seem that you're asking questions, right? So Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in the truth in your inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, to me, as I read this text, it, it doesn't attribute any kind of truth in the uh, in the person of the, the, the psalmist and David. Uh, it would seem to me that, in fact, it's quite the opposite. That what David is saying, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And certainly we understand that David's mother was not some kind of, uh, let's say, unkept woman. But rather, what David was referring to was the fact that, uh, well, he was affirming just the same thing that Paul did, and John did, and the apostles did, that we are all together worthless, that we are totally and utterly corrupt in all of our faculties, that we are um, people who are, are slaves of sin, uh, that we don't have any island of righteousness, as it were, whether you want to call that a spirit or whether you want to call that something created by provenient grace. There is no spirit uh, within us that is uh, uncorrupted at birth, and that is why Christian Christians down through the centuries have, have refuted that kind of Pelagian idea. Okay, let me ask you another question real quick. Luke chapter 1, verse 6, 5 and 6. Say, a certain priest named Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. If they were totally corrupt and totally sinful, how were they able to do that? Well, uh, when the scripture attributes uh, characteristics like blamelessness, or uh, righteousness to a human being, I think that we're to understand that in the sense of that these were God-fearing peoples who uh, believed uh, looking toward, looking forward to the Savior, and in so uh, doing that they, like their forefather Abraham, were, were made righteous by uh, the imputation of, of righteousness uh, that being by faith, just as Abraham was credited to righteousness because he believed God, you know, Genesis 15, 6. Uh, so, too, I would imagine that Zechariah was credited uh, by righteousness, accredited uh, with righteousness because he also believed God. And just as every Christian is, is credited with righteousness, it would seem to me that Paul indicates a continuity of of the terms of salvation when he uses Abraham and David as his examples of New Testament salvation in Romans chapter 4. So that's how I would understand those terms. Okay, so how can someone walk in all the commandments and, and ordinance of the Lord blameless if they are totally sinful by nature and do not have a part of their soul that guides them in the right direction? Um... I think that 
what the writer here is is saying is that um, not that these people uh, didn't have a, a sin nature, um, and 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 there's other people within the Bible that are characterized uh, as so. Um, people like Joseph, uh, I can think of uh, different different people, um, but yet the Bible's quite happy with depicting their flaws and, and, and frailty. Um, David, you know, is someone who's characterized as being a man after God's own heart. And yet we see that David had, you know, a, a sin nature that he had problems and that, um, in, in his repentance, he said, the Lord, uh, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count as sin. I, I think what the writer here, what Luke is getting at is, not that these people were ontologically sinless, uh, because if that were the case, then we wouldn't need a, a sinless substitute Savior, but rather that these people were righteous in the sight of God and that they were covered in the righteousness of God's Son before um, the, the, uh, the substitution was... Was made. Okay, let me, let me ask you another question about being born into sin. Do you believe that when a child comes out the womb, they are born corrupted? Or do you believe they must sow to the first, sow to the sin nature before they reap corruption? I, I don't, I don't need to tell you what I believe. I can just tell you what the truth is. The truth is that the wages of sin is death and babies die. And, and therefore, I'm inclined to say that, yes, babies are guilty, uh, just as Adam sinned, and we were made sinners, using the actual verb made. I think it's Ganao there, right, in Romans 5. So uh, there, it's not a question as to whether or not babies are guilty before God. Uh, they bear the guilt of Adam, and that is enough for their damnation. Um, whether or not they bear out the... Uh, the the implications of that guilt uh, is something something entirely different. But having that guilt, absolutely, babies die, and the wages of sin is death. Okay, another question. The, the scripture reads, "He who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption." When a baby comes out of the womb, have they sold to the flesh? Um, hmm. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, but that is not the basis upon which a baby would be guilty. Uh, it would seem to me that uh, even the most natural reading of Romans chapter 5 would indicate that it is because of the sin of Adam, he being our federal head, our father in a somewhat mysterious sense, because of his sin, um, the many, that being humanity, were made in, were, were made uh, uh, unrighteous. Uh, he says, uh, as to the one trespass that led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Um, for as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's disobedience, the many were made, uh, will be made righteous. Uh, so it would seem to me that whether or not infants actually do a positive action that is in rebellion to God is 
a moot point because the guilt that a, a child would bear is by virtue of the fact that Adam, our federal head, uh, sinned. And likewise, the opposite of that, and, and what reinforces my answer, is that in the same way, Jesus acts as our federal head so that by his obedience to the Father, the many will be made righteous. So if you usurp the one, you actually usurp the gospel. And, and that's really the argument that Paul is making there. Okay. I'm done with my questions for now. Okay, well, thank you for each of your cross-examination times. Uh, it's at this point that we're going to take a brief 10-minute break to allow each of us to uh, collect our thoughts and perhaps use the facilities. Uh, I'll give you guys a call back in about 10 minutes. Okay, well, welcome back after that short uh, break. We are now at the point in our debate where we're going to uh, take part in our second round of rebuttals. Um, this time, the order is reversed, and Michael Burgos will begin. So, Michael, whenever, when you're ready to go, when you begin speaking, I'll start your 10-minute timer. Okay. Um, I, I think... What Mr. Thomas is not understanding um, is really the way in which we read the scriptures, uh, the way in which we approach the Bible, uh, is, is to approach it as we would, in a certain sense, any other book. That is, we approach it not as a book... Uh, with isolated passages to which we pick and choose um, and, and, and impose context upon, but rather a unified whole in the sense of it having ultimately one author, although many human authors, and, and to read it within uh, its context in light of the facts of audience, author, time, and, and so forth. And I think that most people understand that when they read the scriptures, but it it would seem to me evidently, and I and I mean no disrespect, that Mr. Thomas does not understand that. And I and I say that because it makes me sad and it makes me extraordinarily nervous for Mr. Thomas because I do not believe that someone who denies the doctrine of original sin, that denies that humans are completely and utterly corrupt uh, that that Jesus was not God and man at his birth can be saved I think that those two things are absolutely I think those are heresies of the highest order and the church and I'm not talking about Romanism because the Roman Catholic Church as we understand it to, to even suggest that that has any continuity with the patristic period or anything like that is just it, it's just absurd. And and at that point, you know, I, I would just say read some, you know, read J and D Kelly, read some of the early church works, and and that becomes quite apparent. But the church has historically said no to these kinds of teachings. Uh, the church has said no to the heresy of adoptionism, and and in in response to that, we have 
the Council of uh, Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, as some people say, or Chalcedon, as some people would say. That creed, uh, created in 451 AD, solidified the fact that the Church Universal affirmed and believed that Jesus Christ is God and man. And they didn't do so because some popes, to use Mr. Thomas's words, got in a room and decided what everybody was going to believe. If you read the history and if you read the creed itself, that creed comes directly from the text of Scripture. Much of the language that is used there is taken out of Scripture. I haven't, if you notice, appealed to any popes, to any papists of any kind, to any uh, authorities of any kind other than the text of the scriptures. And so once again, I would say that Mr. Thomas has uh, completely and utterly demonstrated an inability uh, at this juncture to read the Bible correctly. Again, Mr. Thomas would have to demonstrate how he can compartmentalize uh, the language of God's heart and, and say anthropomorphism can't be the case when at the same time he would have to affirm that God has hair and lips and a womb, uh, that God has wings. Um, I mean, at that point, the wheels kind of come off, and, and I haven't heard anything regarding that, and I, and I would like to. I've read Mr. Thomas's book three times, and in that text, I can find no place, and I just searched it during our break, I can find no place where he identifies this notion of man's spirit becoming corruptible later on. Um, maybe I, I missed it in all three times. That, that could be. I'm not beyond making mistakes. But it would seem to me that Mr. Thomas has changed his position in, in, in some sense. From, from what I can tell, he had previously said that the spirit of man is incorruptible, it is sinless. Maybe that's a miscommunication, I'm not sure. The real problem here is, and, and the real thing at, at, at the, uh, the, real, the real crux of the issue is the nature of Christ and, and the nature of the gospel. Both of these things are at stake if one decides to believe what Mr. Thomas is saying. Jesus was worshipped as God. Jesus himself taught that no one is to receive worship other than God alone. Jesus said that to Satan in Luke 4, 8. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And yet we see Jesus and his infancy being served, being get provided gifts, and being the object of worship. We see that Jesus is given not an interpretation, rather the inspired writer gives an interpretation of Emmanuel, God with us. That is just a fact of what the term means. It's not an interpretation. It's not even a translation. It's just what the term means. And the writer says so. So unless we're going to usurp the divinely inspired writer, Matthew, uh, regarding what his uh, understanding of that is, then, then you know, we would have to stick with what the Bible actually says it means. And in fact, the very name of Jesus, as I previously mentioned, uh, indicates or points to the very deity of Christ as 
others having his name previously uh, uh, within Scripture, uh, Joseph and so forth, uh, would point to to Christ, uh, Joseph, J Joshua rather. Um, there is something very palpable within the theology of Mr. Thomas, and that is that he is reinventing the wheel according to his own predilections. This is precisely what Paul warned Timothy about. This is precisely what John warned us about in 1 John when he said that those who arise from among us were never really of us. Mr. Thomas, I am pleading with you. You are wrong. You've been proven wrong here by by the plain and natural reading of the text. This is not a sword fight. This is not anything other than my plea to you to repent and to believe the gospel as it is written, to put aside pre-existing doctrines and, and ideas, and to cling to the word of God as it is written within its context. And uh, whatever time left I have, I, I will concede. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. And now I'll turn the proverbial microphone over once again to Cornell. Cornell, when you're uh, ready to begin speaking, I'll start your 10-minute timer. Okay, uh, well, Mike gave me a lot to talk about. But first of all, he gave a warning to me about what I'm writing, wrote in my book. But I'm going to give you guys a warning about the Catholic teaching. And it comes in a letter to the Church of Rome which reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For what may be known of God is manifest in them, and for God has shown it to them. See, God has shown us everything in that Bible. See, when I ask Mike, show me where you can connect Jesus to the Father after he was born, before the baptism, you guys saw that Michael could not do it. The Roman Catholic Church manufactured that belief. And when they manufactured that belief, it says you turned God into the image of a corruptible man because Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. He then goes on to say, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. The Pope calls himself Holy Father. That doctrine of the Spirit of God in Jesus after he was born and before the baptism does not exist in the Bible. And God tells us he gave a complete testimony of his son. Mike went on to say that when we read the Bible, we should read it according to how man has taught us to read it. He does not say, pay attention to what God says. He did not say that. He said the Bible was written by human authors. He took away the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write the Bible. He said, I deny original sin. No, I deny that the way the church has taught it, because it has hidden what sin or sin nature really is. They call it human nature. The sin nature is not human nature. It is Satan's nature. 
it did not belong to Adam and Eve when God created them in his image and likeness, because God does not have a sin nature in him. So to say that Adam had a sin nature before he ate of the tree is to say God had a sin nature. The sin nature had to come from Satan. That's why he deceived the woman, and that's why it says, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. The scripture tells us that Eve saw the tree as something to be desired after the serpent spoke to her. So once Eve saw the tree as something to be, be, be desired, a desire that went against God, sin was birthed in her soul at that moment. And what sin does is it produces all manner of evil desire in us. It gives us the thought. Romans 8 and 5 says, the mind of the flesh is not subject to God. The word mind is pronita, pronito in that, in that scripture, and it means the inclination. See, the sin nature gives us an inclination to do something. We don't have to do it. Then our spirit gives us an inclination to do what's right because our spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit that we are a child of God. So when I get in a situation, I'm thinking of doing something against the will of God because my sin nature has given me an inclination. My spirit then bears witness with the Holy Spirit that I am a child of God and say, no, don't do it. So my spirit gives me the inclination to do the right thing. It is with my heart I choose which one to do. So for... So what the Catholic Church has actually done, they have stolen our image because it, the Bible is written according to how God sees us. That's why you see the word spirit, heart, and soul on almost every page of the Bible, because that's how important those words are. But the Church, or the Catholic Church, said those words were synonymous. And they took those words away, and if you open up 50 Bibles and you look at the verses that uses those words, you will see those are the verses that are switched and changed around. Satan has been doing some very good deceiving. Also, he says that Jesus, the likeness of sinful flesh, is the likeness of Adam after Adam sinned. And after Adam sinned, he was no longer connected to God. Jesus was sent in the likeness of Adam after Adam sinned, which is not being connected to God. That's why Michael cannot show a verse of Jesus being connected to God after his birth and before the baptism. See, that's where the church, actually there were two bishops in the council that fought against the Catholic Church saying, wait a minute, Jesus does not need the Holy Spirit twice. The, the Pope's student in the Catholic Church kicked those bishops out of the council. The, the man decided what they were going to do with that teaching. It's a manufactured belief. It is not real. If it's real, I want Michael to show it to me in the Bible, because as I said before, he who does not believe God has made God a liar. And God says, Behold, my son... I will put my spirit upon him. So I want to ask Michael to show me where God put his spirit on, in, or around his son after he was born before the baptism. Michael cannot do that because it doesn't exist. So 
because the father was not with Jesus at that particular moment, and, and, and for, for another thing is, Jesus, as I said, as the son, was God's true inner self. So the adoptionism belief is out the window. This is not a form of adoptionism at all. He was God's true inner self. But he did not have the power of the Most High and the Holy Spirit because he came in the likeness of men. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was made in all things like his brothers. So if he was made in all things like his brothers, and he did not have, if he was not actually in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he had the Spirit of God in him, then he was not really made in all things like his brothers, as the Scriptures say. See, there's many Scriptures that we start turning God and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we start turning them into liars. We start telling half-truths, and we break Scriptures in half and we omit things, and, and, and so we start creating these doctrines and these falsehoods. So, in closing, I just want to say that this is not a form of adoptionism. Jesus was God's true inner self. Let's put it this way, because this is in my book. Imagine that voice that you hear within your soul when you talk to yourself. Imagine that voice proceed forth out of you and sit next to you. It would be you in every way, but it would not be you. It would be your true inner self, and it would be sitting next to you. As the scripture says, a man's heart is at his right hand. Jesus was the heart of God. Just like we have an inner wisdom within us, an inner voice that talks to us. God, we are created in the image and likeness of God. See, God has that as well. And that's the part of God that proceeded forth and came from him. His word. And it became a, it became a, he became a man and he took on that, that nature in us that Satan planted in us. He took it on. And he defeated it because he was tempted at all points like we are, and yet without sin. See, a man cannot be tempted without the inclination to do wrong. And the inclination to sin comes from the sin nature. See, that's another thing the Catholic Church has hidden. And see, Michael has been taught to put guilt and sin on our children when they come out of the womb, when in fact... We are told that we are beautifully and wonderfully made. So when our children come out of the womb, they have a sin nature, but they haven't listened to it yet. They haven't sown to it yet. And they have a spirit in them that will retain their morals. So if we teach our children godly things as soon as they come out of the womb, we teach them spiritual food, their spirit grows. As Jesus' spirit grew, it said, and his spirit grew strong. And the grace of God was with him. See, Luke 2, 40 tells you the grace of God was with him, but not the Spirit of God. I'm sorry, Cornell, I'm sorry I have to interrupt, but your 10 minutes is over. Okay, thank you. No problem. 
Okay, <clears throat> it's at this point in the debate that uh, my guests will wrap things up. This is the time that they have to deliver their closing statements. Just a reminder to both our participants that the time of uh, the closing statements are not an opportunity to present new arguments, uh, new materials. Uh, it's rather an opportunity to uh, sum up and remind listeners about the things that have been argued thus far. So uh, with that sort of disclosure, uh, sorry, that sort of um, uh, caveat out of the way, Mike, I'll hand the microphone proverbially over to you. And when you when you begin speaking, I'll start your five-minute timer. Okay. Thank you, uh, Chris. <clears throat> this uh, thesis of this debate um, is a denial of uh, Jesus's dual nature, that he is as it were, the Anthropos, uh, both God and man at his conception. Um, Mr. Thomas uh, was tasked this evening with defending the notion that Jesus was not both God and man, why I have been tasked with um, demonstrating the illegitimacy and the untruthfulness and the unbiblical nature of that thesis. Four times this evening I provided evidence regarding Jesus' natures, uh, regarding his, his divine nature particularly. I pointed out that Jesus is identified as Yahweh, to which Mr. Thomas agreed. Men cannot be identified as Yahweh. Uh, that would be blasphemy. However, Jesus... Uh, the incarnate God, the incarnate Son, indeed was called Yahweh because that is who he is. He is ontologically God, and therefore to call him God, or to call him Yahweh as he is in all four Gospels, is correct. And I would argue that the very terminology, Son of God, is indicative of deity in and of itself. Um... No one is called Son of God like Jesus is called Son of God. Um, I demonstrated how Jesus was worshipped in the uh, uh, Gospels and also in uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews uh, by angels and by men. Mr. Thomas never made mention of that, never made mention of the fact that how, how in his paradigm Jesus could be worshipped by angels and men, and not at the same time be God, in light of a text like Luke 4, 8, where Jesus says, you're not supposed to worship anything other than God. Evidently, my opponent this evening thinks there's an exception to that rule. Unfortunately, the scripture doesn't make such an exception. And so either, from his perspective, we have is an inconsistent text, or we have what Paul condemned, the worshipping of the creature rather than the creator, because in Mr. Thomas's view, Jesus was merely a creature at that point. I made a lot of statements this evening regarding the uh, issue of original sin, regarding uh, the issue of man's spirit, regarding the, the issues of anthropomorphism, not because uh, those were explicitly related tonight's tonight's thesis, but rather because those issues pertaining to that are the fundamental presuppositions upon which Mr. Thomas's understanding of the Son of God rests. I made mention of the numerous texts which identify 
God having all kinds of various and sundry aspects. God having hair. God having um, hands and fingers and, and a tongue. Clearly God does not have these things. Clearly these are anthropomorphisms. Um, they're, they're not to meant to tell us what God is like uh, liter literally, but rather they're meant to tell us what God is like figuratively or what he's doing or communicate in such a way that we can understand. But in order for Mr. Thomas's contention to stand, he would have to affirm that God literally has these things. And he says it himself. Uh, he said that for God to anthropomorphize, that would be tantamount to lying. I'm paraphrasing there, but I gave the quote in the opening presentation. None of that was ever dealt with. None of that was ever mentioned. Um, I also uh, mentioned that uh, within the prologue of John, we have um, Jesus, of course, being identified as the Word. That is a, uh, a kind of metaphorical language that John uses. John uses all kinds of language in description of the Son of God to communicate who he is and how he relates to both God, his Father, and to uh, people. Uh, for example, Jesus is called the bread. We don't we don't believe we don't we don't conduct our whole narrative, our whole understanding of Scripture through the lens of Jesus being able to be identified by bread, and so nor should we as Jesus is identified as the Word. And so, of course, my time is up, and so I'll uh, uh, end there. Okay, Cornell, when you're ready to begin, I'll start your five minute timer for your closing argument. Okay, my closing argument is this. Michael is, has a one-track mind, and he keeps saying that I, when, when they worship Jesus, and it says only God can be worshipped, I have identified Jesus as God's true inner self. So I am not saying Jesus was not God and when he was born. What I am saying is that he was not fully God because he was the heart of God who proceeded forth from God. You cannot be fully God if he proceeded forth from God. See, that's where we start turning God into a liar. Another thing Mike has said is that when I'm referring to God as having hands and everything and anthropomorphizing himself, God can have anything that he wants. See, we can't take that away from God. But I can tell you that Jesus says no one has seen God, his form, or his shape. And Jesus has seen God, so God, Jesus knows that God has a form and a shape. And, and Job, in Job it says, a spirit passed before my face. There was an image before me. A form appeared before me. I could not, could not discern it. So see, God has an image. And he has a form. What that form or image is, I can't say. But what, what I will say is that he was a part of God. And another thing Mike focused on was the dual nature. See, that's another deception that the Catholic Church has handed down to mankind. 
See, if Jesus had a dual nature, and we do not, then Jesus was not made in all things like his brothers. But see, Jesus tells a man, he says, your spirit is willing and your flesh is weak. Jesus is telling us that we also have a dual nature. We have a nature of righteousness, and we have a nature to do bad. We have to listen to either one within our soul, and we have to follow one or the other from the time that we are born. So we are also born with a dual nature. So see, what we have to be careful about is not what we give Jesus, is what we have been taught to take away from ourselves. See, God showed me a lot when I wrote my book. He showed me a lot of deception and a lot of things. See, we speak sin into our children from the time that they come out of the womb, and God has said, no, that is not true. Because we have to sow to the flesh before we reap corruption, even though it dwells in us. As Paul says, in my flesh dwells a no good thing. And he also goes to say, it is no longer I, but sin dwells in me. See, the sin nature is not us, but the Catholic Church and Orthodoxy has taught us to say it is us. God tells Cain in Genesis 4, he says, sin lies at the door, and his desire is for you, but you should rule over him. See, God is telling us right there that sin or the sin nature is not us. God calls the sin nature a him, the spirit of disobedience that began to dwell in Adam and Eve because it wasn't dwelling there before they talked with the serpent. So to be turn around and start calling it us, we have been deceived. Because God said sin's desire is for us. So if its desire is for us, and then we start calling it us, it has a victory. So God had to show me my true image. That's why the title of my book is Searching for Answers When God Reveals His Image. Because the true image of God and the true image of Adam, the sin nature did not exist. And, and, and Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of Adam after Adam ate off the apple. And see, and that's another truth that has been turned into a lie. So what we have to do is, is we have to trust in the Lord and do not lean to our own understanding. We have to believe what God says. And God says about Jesus, okay. he said, I will put my spirit on him. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Cornell. Okay, so um, that closes up the debate proper. If this were a live in-person debate, I'd encourage the audience to give our participants a round of applause. But this isn't live, and uh, <clears throat> my audience is not listening live and able to ask questions on their behalf on their own behalf. So I'm going to spend the next half hour asking Cornell and Michael questions, uh, which I think reflect uh, the kinds of questions that not that audience members, having listened to the debate thus far would be asking them. And I'm going to begin with Cornell. 
Uh, and, and just as a reminder, the way this will work is I'm going to give the person to whom I ask the question two and a half minutes to respond. Uh, if they take up whether they take up that full time or not, I'll then give his opponent 60 seconds to respond and then I'll switch to the other person and we'll go like we'll go back and forth like that four times. Um, now, Cornell, you you closed your in your closing statement. You you mentioned what God had shown you during the course of writing your book. Uh, your book recounts a series of dreams that you had, experiences in which you awoke with scripture verses on your mind. And this leads one of my guests, uh, one of my podcast listeners named Ryan, uh, to ask, why should you trust your subjective experiences when others like Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Shirley MacLaine? Some Catholics, Muslim suicide bombers, and so forth, uh, they've had subjective experiences that have led them to some very bizarre conclusions. What, why should we trust these subjective experiences that you've had? I say that because when I pray to God, as I said, as you saw in the beginning of my book, I believed in the Holy Trinity, which I still do. But I was talking with a group who didn't, and we both opened the Bible and showed why we believed what we believed. So I prayed to God and said, you know what, you have to show me the truth, and it has to be in your words and not man's. Because if it comes from man, I could choose Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, whatever. So, as you know, as you read my book, I, I woke up four nights in a row with four references. It wasn't dreams. I went, it wasn't anything visual. I would just wake up with a scripture address. Four nights in a row I woke up with these addresses, and when I put them together... It said something, and it was in response to my prayer. So at that point in time, I decided to start writing them down. And the first question that was really headed to me was, what is the image you are created in? And as I began to study that, I started to realize that we really don't know. We say that we are in the image of God, but we don't know the image of God. So I started studying that, and then God began to show me his image. And once he showed me his image, he showed me our image and how he sees us. See, we translated the Bible according to how we see ourselves. But when God sees us, he sees a spirit that is willing. He sees our hearts. He says, I search your heart. And he sees our flesh or the part of our soul that's not subject to him. He sees all three of those when he looks at us. And the Bible was written according to that. But see, we have said that those words are figurative. But there were times when my heart was stressed and my spirit was weary, and I could tell the difference. So to say that those things are figurative within my soul is an error. And that's what God had shown me. He said, this is your image, and what it is, it, it is our levels of consciousness within our soul. We do not have only one level of consciousness within us. And our levels of consciousness are actual spiritual things. They're not carnal. Okay, that's two and a half minutes. Mike, you have 60 seconds to follow up to uh, my listener Ryan's question, if you like. Yeah, first let me say that's a very fine question and uh, one that uh, having been been given the opportunity I would have asked myself. Um, it would seem to me that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, would not twist his own word. He would not depart from the natural reading of his own word, from, from the normal meaning of words. And Mr. Thomas and his supposed revelations, um, 
these out of context verse numbers that you know pop into his mind in the middle of the night that they do just that and they've led to a theology and and a doctrinal system that has never been before heard of from anyone else ever jesus said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it evidently they did prevail against it because mr thomas has like joseph smith basically said all of the religions and their professors are corrupt okay uh i'll turn to you now michael and ask you uh the following question Cornell pointed out uh, passages in which um, which say that Jesus came from the Father and from the Holy Spirit, and that the Father didn't come upon Jesus until his baptism, at which point he became the one true God or, or fully God. And in his second rebuttal, he warned us and said you couldn't respond to his question when he asked you to show him a verse that shows that Jesus was united with the Father and Holy Spirit after his birth, but prior to his baptism. So uh, let me just give you an opportunity to do that with, you know, with the two and a half minutes you'll have. Can you provide any evidence that Jesus was united with the Father and had the power of the Holy Spirit prior to his baptism? Uh, yes, I, I think that, um, first of all, I, I just want to point out that that idea is kind of moot insofar as uh, what, I, what I did is, is attempt to prove that Jesus is ontologically God as the object of worship, as being identified as Yahweh and so forth. But if we look at the, the period, and, and I meant to make mention of this pre previously, but I didn't, uh, the time in which Jesus was found um, in the temple, and of course his parents were, were looking for him, um, of course we know what Jesus' response was to his dismayed mother. I was in my father's house about my father's business. Jesus was identifying that God the Father is his Father. John 5 tells us that Jesus identifying that the Father, uh, that God is his Father, makes him equal with God. It would seem to me that, and, and those are John's words, mind you, not not the, the words of, of the unbelievers, right? Right, So it would seem to me that given the breadth of understanding that Jesus identifies uh, with in, in that narrative, and that, and that Jesus is calling God his Father, uh, of course, by implication, making him the Son of God, another title of deity, uh, with, you know, of course, within the context of the gospel, really satisfies that, that, that question, because it, it puts him within the, the family of God. And that's exactly why, I, you know, I had to laugh a little bit when when Thomas, Mr. Thomas said, you know, I'm still a Trinitarian. Well, well really, you're not if you don't believe that, right? So. Okay. Uh, Cornell, just, just to reiterate, what Mike has said is that uh, prior to his baptism, Jesus called God his Father, and then later, after his baptism, John says that when Jesus called himself his Father, uh, called called the Father his Father, he was making self, himself equal to God. How do you you have sixty seconds? How, how do you respond to this argument? I'll respond with that is that is another deception that we've all we've all been taught about ourselves. I'm going to read Numbers twenty seven and sixteen. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh put a man in the congregation. God formed the spirit of man within him. He forms us in the womb. 
God is all a father of this whole world. He is our spiritual father, regardless if we accept him as our God or not. So Jesus, when he said, when he was a child, when he said, I'm about my father's business, he was telling the truth. But after the baptism, he told Philip, you're looking at the father. See, that's the difference. Jesus cannot lie. He cannot tell a half-truth. He cannot tell 99% truth. See, when he said, I'm about my father's business, he was the son at that time. But, like I said before, I am a Trinitarian. He was God's true inner self made flesh. Okay. All right. And another thing, Michael didn't didn't give you scripture connecting Jesus to God. Well, hold on, hold on. You you had your sixty seconds, and and this isn't a time to to rebut. Um. So now I'll return to you, Cornell, uh, and ask you the second question that I have for you. In his opening, Michael argued that if you were being consistent, you would affirm that. God doesn't only have a heart, a soul, and, and a spirit, but that he has arms, a back, a face, feet, fingers, a head, lips, a mouth, nostrils, shoulders, and hair. He'd have to have a womb said to give birth in Deuteronomy 32.18, and he'd have to have wings, uh, which is said of God some six or more times in the Psalms. Um, how do you respond to this argument? I, I know that you said in your closing that you can't tell God what form he can have, but does that mean that you do in fact affirm that God possesses all of these things? You've got two and a half minutes. Well, I don't claim that God has an arm, hands, face, hair, and all that. I don't claim all that. I claim what God has told me spiritually. As the Scripture says, you compare spiritual things to spiritual things. We do not teach according to the words man wisdom teaches, but what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual things. So in Genesis 8.21, when God said in his heart, when Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, and when Hannah spoke in her heart. See, this is a likeness that we share with God. See, and that likeness is a spiritual thing. So when we speak to ourselves, that's a spiritual activity. Now, I don't put hands, feet, and, and eyes to all that. But when I speak to myself, I'm speaking to another part of my soul that is me and is also with me. See, so God had to show me that I am in his spiritual image. Our physical bodies came from the dust of the earth. Spiritually, we, we formed the spirit in us. He is the Lord of the spirits of all flesh. So spiritually, we are all his children, even though when we are born, because of our, the nature of sin that's born with us, we are disconnected from God, just like Jesus was. Jesus was disconnected when the moment he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's why there's no scripture to connect them before the baptism. That's the point I'm trying to make, because that verse does not exist. That's manufactured by the Church of Rome. And Michael cannot give us a verse for that. I'm done. Okay, Mike, uh, 60 seconds to respond. Okay, I'll just I'll just respond uh, for, first uh, a quote from uh, Mr. Thomas's book. Quote: For God to anthropomorphize Himself or inspire the writers to anthropomorphize Him would be inconsistent. He would have committed the same sin as man. End quote. So it would seem that you know, on the one hand, Mr. Thomas wants. Uh, 
you know, the, the aspects and characteristics that he, he would like, heart and, and all that and so on, so that he can make his doctrinal paradigm stand. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to bear out the implications of what he actually says, which is, of course, inconsistency. And we all know, as good students of Dr. White, that inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument. And and even more so, uh, I would just point out that it just just give his book a read. Uh, he doesn't say that just once, but numerous times. Okay. Um, now it's it's uh, we're both Calvinists, as good students of Dr. White, uh, which is, makes it no surprise to me that the question I had prepared picks up naturally from the 60-second rebuttal that you just gave, um, or the 60-second response you just gave. The question I had prepared for you was this. Uh, Cornell argues in his book, if I understood him correctly, and it's possible that I didn't, um, that because God says not to make idols that look like him, uh, that therefore he wouldn't use anthropomorphic language to describe himself, because if he were to do so, he would be uh, making an idol out of himself, making a semblance. Uh, out of himself. Now, Cornell will have sixty seconds in a, in a couple of minutes to tell me if I was wrong about that. Um, but but how would you? Besides besides just making the argument that you have, which is that if he were if Cornell were consistent, he'd say God has a heart and hair or hair and a womb and so forth. Besides that argument, how do you respond to the argument that God wouldn't use anthropomorphic language because if he would if he did, he'd be lying or 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 making an idol out of himself. Well. What Michael said, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, Cornell. This, that was a question to Michael. You'll have a, a minute to respond in a moment, Michael. So, so the question, if I understand, is what rationale could be used to support the idea that that God using anthropomorphic language wouldn't violate the the first commandment? Is that right? Yeah, something. Or like rather, that. the second commandment. Uh it, it would seem to me that the second commandment has um, much to do with intentionality, and it has much to do with um, with the rendering of, of worship in, in the religious sense. Um, and so, when when God communicates uh, or or reveals Himself um, using language that is uh, similar to language that we would already be familiar with. I think, in fact, what he is doing there is condescending and certainly not violating his own commandments. Um, he, you know, of course, instructed the Israelites to create an ark that had images on it of the angels, uh, the cherubim, or, or so forth. And, and so it, it would just seem to me that the prohibition in the Decalogue is not against language um, descriptive of God using concepts that we're familiar with, but rather uh, the worship rendered uh, unto a created thing that is supposed to be and, and ideally for, um, and, and really in a teleological sense, perfect for uh, God alone. And I, and I think that is exactly the teaching of Jesus and exactly why uh, for Jesus to have been worshipped um, is perfectly consistent with orthodoxy and not consistent with Mr. Thomas's view. Okay, Cornell, I'm sorry if uh, uh, for interrupting you a moment ago. Uh, just I, I was asking the question of Michael, but now you've got 60 seconds, and you know maybe you can clarify and, and 
help me out to understand where I might have gotten things wrong in the way that I understood your argument. Can you can you uh, explain why you think God could not use this kind of anthropomorphic language of himself? Well, first of all, you guys are misunderstanding the Scripture when it says compare spiritual things to spiritual things. See, when you talk about pictures on the ark or you talk about hands and hair, those are not spiritual things. The heart of a man is the innermost man. It's the innermost part of our spirit. It's a spiritual thing. It's not a physical thing. So when God said in his heart, it's the same as when we speak to ourselves. That's a spiritual thing. And for God, it's the inner seat of the spirit. It cannot merely be a human characteristic since the spirit of man was formed within him by God, in God's likeness. God created man, man did not create God. So how could God receive characteristics, spiritual characteristics, from his creation, when the creation was made in his image and likeness? That is also in my book. See, we can't give God a spiritual characteristic. Okay. All right, returning to you, Cornell, uh, the next question I have for you is this. In Philippians 2, uh, Paul offers Christ as an example of the kind of humility that we are to exhibit in the way that we treat one another, as if we're not equal, as if others are superior to us, even though, in reality, we're all equal and all equally created in the image of God. Uh, so when we so treat one another, when we exhibit this kind of humility toward, toward one another, we don't empty ourselves of our equality with one another. We don't become something less than what we once were. So the question I have for you is, how can Jesus serve as an example of this kind of humility if he did actually become something less than God, something not equal with God? And you've got two and a half minutes. Well, first of all, as I said before, Jesus speaks what he knows, and he testifies to what he has seen, and we do not receive his witness. Jesus tells us the Father is greater than I. See, we do not accept that truth. We do not accept Jesus was telling the truth when he said that. And how is the Father greater than Jesus? We go to Luke 4.14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. See, that's a power Jesus never possessed before the baptism. So that alone, and then he tells Philip, the works I do, the Father does because the Father dwells in me. Believe me for the very work's sake. See, Jesus could not do any works without the Father. See, that is where the Father was greater than Jesus was the power of the Most High. Jesus did not have that. Okay. Uh, Michael, you've got 60 seconds to respond. Um, what we heard there was a pretty explicit denial of the deity of, of Jesus. Um, and, and just reading through Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and even better philippians 1 uh, 2 1 through 11 um it is really clear what is being talked about there and it is not a divestment of a divine nature um the people who initially argued that were german liberal theologians uh from the 19th century that that's a a new thing and and it's never been embraced by anyone uh any conservative uh uh people who, who actually believe the Bible to be inspired. And 
for Jesus, I mean, there's, there's just so much wrong with that. Jesus healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and forgave sins. These are all things indicative of deity, not merely uh, being some kind of anointed, uh, you know, intermediary. Okay. Uh, Michael, back to you. As Cornell rightfully points out, uh, Scripture teaches that God cannot be tempted. Uh, He argued, Cornell argued in his second rebuttal, that someone can't be tempted if he or she lacks the inclination to do wrong. And he argues in his book that if Jesus were equal to God prior to his baptism, he couldn't have been tempted since God can't be tempted. How do you respond to this? How do you reconcile the Bible's teaching that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are if he couldn't sin and if he didn't have the inclination to sin? And you've got two and a half minutes. I can reconcile that uh, in a lot less than two and a half minutes. Jesus is God in human flesh. That is that at a point in time, the Son of God became man, entering into all of the frailties and limitations of human existence, yet without sin. So that while God, you know, speaking regarding the Father, regarding the Son prior to the Incarnation, could not be tempted insofar as he was God, Jesus being fully and completely and authentically human could be tempted because, like the writer said, he was just like us yet without sin. He was both God and man at his conception, and and that really is the thesis of this whole debate. What Mr. Thomas fails to see over and over and over again is he's going from, from one ditch to the next without staying in the in the in the straight path in the middle uh he's using unitarian arguments to say well jesus you know said that the father was greater than i and then he's going to other arguments over here saying that well jesus was part of god he was god's heart no you can't have it both ways jesus was god and man he wasn't less than god or part of god um so and i think that's that's as best as i can communicate that okay uh cornell you've got 60 seconds but I just want to say that um, Jesus, the inclination to sin, is from the sin nature. See, God Almighty, or the Father, he does not subvert justice, nor does he pervert righteousness. And so that's where we lose it at. See, Jesus was the heart of God representing his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. So what God did was allow that part of his soul representing those attributes of God, became flesh and walked among men for 30 years, being tempted by sin, just like we are. As a child, he had to learn to choose the good over the evil. He had to learn obedience. His spirit had to grow strong. See, so to say that the Spirit of God was in him and the Spirit of God needed to grow strong when the Holy Spirit is, has all the power, we, we weaken the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, when he was baptized, now he said Jesus went about healing, he went about taking demons from people and doing many miracles. But see, he did not do those things until he received the power of, the, of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Okay, that was... He did none of that. Okay, that's about 80 seconds. Uh, we got a little bit of spare time, so it's not that big of a deal. But uh, but we do have time for one more question for each of you. Uh, Cornell, I'm going to come back to you now for the final question I've got for you. Um, 
And uh, I'm going to stumble over this one because I haven't fully typed the question out in advance. But but let me just put it this way. Uh, Michael and I and, and many of my listeners are uh, Protestants. We believe in the doctrines of sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Uh, we believe that um, tradition has got to be subjected to the authoritative and, and inerrant uh, word of God. Uh, and, and we try best we can to subject our traditions to it, uh, abandoning the tradition when it comes in conflict with, conflict with scripture. But but at the same time, we recognize that throughout church history, God has uh, worked through uh, teachers that he has appointed. And, um, you know, I mean, Paul describes teachers as gifts that God has given to the church. And so um, I, for one, have come to really appreciate a, a phrase that a friend of mine, a fellow podcaster, has sort of coined, which goes like this. Theological novelty is not a good thing. So the question I have for you is, you know, uh, there are certainly Christological uh, very, uh, deviations from what we would call orthodoxy that are, have very ancient roots, but I'm not familiar with any of them that resemble what you've argued in your book. And so the question I have for you is, can you point me to any historical precedent for what you've said about things, you know, about the image of God, uh, God having a heart and so forth? A any, any, any historical precedent for the things that you argue in your book? And you've got two and a half minutes. Well, after I did all my research, like I said, on the image of God, what I found that every doctrine focused on the image alone, but nothing talked about the likeness we share with God. The likeness we share with God has to do with our levels of consciousness that is within our soul, which the early Christian thinkers did not think of. The levels of consciousness within our soul is our spirit, our heart, and our sin nature. They each have life within themselves. See, God said man became a living soul. God did not say man became mind, body, and soul. See, the living soul, each part of our soul has thought, has will, and has desire. And they communicate with one another. In the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. They communicated with each other within God. See, when God began to show me that, that's when the Scripture started coming to life. And I said, wait a minute, this is what the early Christian thinkers missed. He missed that these are actual parts of our consciousness. We began to say they're figurative terms. And another thing is there's no denomination on this planet that gives an actual image of God. So when we say we are created in the image and likeness of God, we really didn't know what that was. And my book reveals what it really is. So when we say we're created in his image and likeness, but we don't know what it is, that's the deception that Satan has put upon us. Because God says everything about him is clearly seen in the Bible. Okay, thank you. And Michael, you have uh, 60 minutes to respond to the question about uh, doctrinal history. Well, I'll be happy to. Um, what we just heard is a man with no theological training whatsoever, with no one in history, in all of history, coming and saying, not until the inception of my book... Has the church been provided 
with the framework to understand the image of God. Okay. Uh, and we'll turn to you now for the final question. Uh, and once again, I'll stumble over this a little bit because I didn't write it out in advance. But uh, basically, it goes something like this. As Cornell has pointed out in, in his book and in his, uh, in his case, uh, Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. Romans 8.3 says he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Um, how, if, if Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect, in image of or in the likeness of sinful flesh, and if you and I and all of Jesus' other brothers uh, have sinful natures, have sinful flesh, how, how could it not be true that Jesus was uh, that Jesus had a sin nature, that Jesus had had sinful desires, a sinful inclination to sin, and so forth? And you've got two and a half minutes. Well, the scripture tells us she was. Oh uh, no, 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 Cornell. I'm sorry. This was again for Michael. You'll you'll have sixty seconds when oh, he's I'm done. Sorry. That's okay. Um, Michael, you've got sixty seconds. Yes. Uh, thank you. So, when when the scripture talks about Jesus being made like his brothers in Hebrews two, um, says even in every respect, um, what what it is communicating there within its context is that. He has an authentic humanity so as to act as a substitute and indeed an intermediary between God and men. Uh, there is only uh, one intermediary between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That is what Paul's driving at. That is what he's driving at. He, Well, if he in fact did write Hebrews, which I, I, I think he probably did, but... In uh, Romans 8, of course, he was sent in a likeness of sinful flesh. But Paul didn't say he was sent in sinful flesh. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. There is a very fine distinction using that Greek term. It does not mean the same as. It means the likeness of something. Um, and that seems to be apparent to me from uh, the study of that, that particular Greek term and... Um, a decent lexicon would bear that out. Okay, Cornell, you've got 60 seconds to respond, and since this was the final question of the debate, your word will be the final word. So uh, you've got 60 seconds. Okay, I just want to touch on what you're saying. He was tempted at all points, as we are, yet without sin. Well, we all know our sin nature tempts us. So if Jesus was tempted at all points without sin... And we, he didn't have a sin nature, then he was not really tempted at all points as we are. But Isaiah 7 and 16 tells us he had to learn to choose between good and evil as a child. And that's temptation. Also, he said, uh, he said the likeness of sinful flesh. We are all born in the likeness of sinful flesh. We do not become sinful until we sold to the flesh. See, we've been taught to put sin into our children or sin on our children when they're born. They have a sin nature, but you have to walk with that nature before you actually have sinned. See, Jesus was born with the nature. That's why it says he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned every thought to go against God. See, we don't condemn every thought we have to go against God. We walk with some of them. So in order for Jesus to have a thought to go against God, he had to have a sin nature. Because okay. that's the only part that goes against God. Humanity does not. Okay, all right. 
All right. Well, uh, that's the end of the debate. I've really appreciated both your time and I thank you for joining me and for the civility uh, with which you conducted this debate. Uh, I hope you both feel that I was uh, as fair and as neutral and as objective as one who holds to the view that I do could possibly be. Um, and uh, and again, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you both so much. Okay, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I really appreciate it. You were very fair. You were very open. And Michael was as well. And I really did enjoy it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. Very welcome. Okay, uh, God bless you both, and, and enjoy the rest of your evenings. Well, I hope you enjoyed the debate and found it as edifying as I did. If you have any feedback, please don't hesitate to write me at chris at theapologetics.com. And please do join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... Thank you.